Well, welcome to all of you. Uh, if you're a guest, my name is John. I'm a pastor here. It's good to be worshiping with you. We're in the midst of a, a sermon series, this kind of post-Easter season called Preparing to Launch. And it's all about uh, the, the times that Jesus appeared to his followers after the resurrection. And in, in some sense, we could understand all of those appearances to be geared at preparing to launch his followers out into the world on this, this great mission he would give them. So that's really the focus of the series. And we're, we're holding in mind the entire time that when uh, those, those women on the morning of the resurrection went to the tomb uh, to prepare Jesus' body and they found the stone rolled away and they encountered an angel. And that angel said these words, he is not here. He has risen. And that, that instant in time, if you can rewind in your mind and kind of imagine yourself standing right there at that tomb, it's a real place. If you can envision yourself standing there at that moment when that proclamation was made, you would be imagining your way to the place, the instant in time, when resurrection from the dead moved from speculative idea maybe even religious hope, to historical claim. Because the claim is, he has risen. It's not philosophical, it's not spiritual. The claim is physical and historical. That makes all the difference. And the scripture from that first Easter morning goes on to say that those women were both terrified and bewildered. Terrified certainly at such an otherworldly experience, but bewildered. Consider that for a moment. You have to believe that at least part of that is the whole human being grappling with this claim, he has risen. And you know those moments where you learn something new and your mind starts going 100 miles an hour, you're trying to put all the pieces together. Imagine it. You're the first human being to hear the claim, he has risen. And you're trying to put the pieces together. What does this mean for me? What does this mean for the world? What does this mean for everything? And you very quickly realize that if it's true, everything is different. It is the most important historical claim in the history of the world and will be so forever. And all these appearances were preparing Jesus' followers to launch out into the world. And if you you happen to be a guest with us today, the story we considered last week was the first half of the last chapter of John's gospel, John chapter 21. And in that story, the apostle Peter says to the other apostles, hey, let's go fishing. And six of the apostles join him. And we learned that this, in some way, was them abandoning their call. They were returning to the familiar, bailing out maybe on the, on the call that Jesus had placed on their lives. And Jesus comes and, and just gently, graciously engages them and reinstates them all. Remember, he said to them, Come follow me. He repeated that line to them, which was both an invitation and an expression of belief. Invitation to come back. Expression of belief because in the ancient world, when a rabbi invited a student to come study with him, he would say, come follow me. And the student would hear the rabbi saying, I believe in you. 
I believe that with your help, you can be like me. So Jesus says this to them at their moment of greatest failure. Isn't that amazing? I still believe in you. I believe that you can be like me. We tend to think of being a Christian or or leadership in whatever small circle we might exert that as as needing to emerge from a place of strength and uh, kind of moral authority and perfection and and, and all of that. All, All authentic Christian leadership emerges from a place of brokenness and vulnerability. This place of openly confessing our failures and sharing with others how Jesus has met us there and reinstated us. And that's what this story is about when Jesus engages the apostle Peter directly on that beach where he had just reinstated the apostles. Listen to the story. Today's scripture reading comes from John 21. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have enough room for the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Thanks, Andrew. Jesus calls us from failure to freedom to follow him. Jesus calls us from failure to freedom to follow him. You know, more than, more than any of all the apostles, Peter was absolutely certain of his own dedication to Jesus. I mean, he promised Jesus that he would go to the death with him. You might remember this line from the Bible. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. I'm, I'm in till the end, said Peter. He was all in. At least he thought he was. 
But then push came to shove, actually. Jesus was arrested, carted off to the Jewish leaders. Peter and John followed as the story goes. Here it is. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus because this disciple, that's John we presume, was known to the high priest. He went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Peter would go on to deny Jesus two more times, and after that third denial, a rooster crowed, fulfilling the cryptic words Jesus had spoken to Peter earlier, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And in that instant, you know, the, the guilt and the shame just kept crushing down on him. I mean, this was a complete failure. And he knew it. And he wept. And, and like us, that wasn't the end of his failures. I mean, Peter is the one who led this, this great fishing rebellion, we might call it, right? Hey guys, I'm going fishing. Who's with me? And half of the apostle corps said, we're in. We're done with this. It's crazy. Let's go back to what we know. By my thinking, this denial was even worse than Jesus denying or Peter denying Jesus three times the night before the cross. Those times when Peter denied Jesus, there was the fear and uncertainty, this dynamic situation of Jesus being arrested. What would happen? How would this play out? Nobody knew. But this denial happened after the resurrection, after Peter and the others had seen Jesus, had touched him, watched him eat food. I mean, they knew Jesus was alive. They had seen him with their eyes. They knew it. And Peter knew better. But he bailed. And, and if, you, if you've tried to follow Jesus for any amount of time, whether you're young or old, uh, whether you're just learning about this at either stage of life or you've been doing this for a long time, if you've tried to follow Jesus you know what it feels like to bail on Jesus. You do. I mean, Peter's struggle is our struggle. We hear Jesus call, come follow me. This great invitation to all, all of humanity, right? With, with the statement of belief, I believe that with my help, you can be like me. Wow. We, we hear that call. We, we say yes, and we fail. Not just once or twice. We keep failing. Again and again. Even after we know of Jesus and his love. And are certain that he's alive right now. We fail. But the beautiful point of this story. Is that just as Jesus reinstates Peter. At his place of greatest failure. Jesus desires to reinstate us. 
And when I say us, I mean you. Because if you're like me, you tend to think, maybe Jesus can reinstate everybody else, but, but really me? Because everybody else doesn't really know what I've done. See, it was, it was over the, the fire in the high priest's courtyard that Peter denied Jesus three times, and it was over a fire on the shore of the Sea of Galilee that Jesus reinstated Peter three times. You see what's going on here, don't you? Jesus, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I do. Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I do. Take care of my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. It doesn't seem like Peter was kind of getting it in the moment, but I'm certain that upon later reflection, he realized that was exactly what he needed. I mean, Jesus demonstrating, uh, at bare minimum, perfect emotional intelligence. Right? The, the incarnation, God coming to us in the person of Jesus, what we celebrate at Christmas. I love the way Eugene Peterson translates that line in the Gospel of John. Jesus moved into our neighborhood, becoming one of us. When Jesus comes to us, he doesn't just come to us in general, becoming a human like us and in general understanding the things that we've struggled with. See, this story shows us yet again that when Jesus comes to us, he comes to exactly where we are in in everything going on inside of us. He meets us there and desires to provide everything that we need to move forward with him. He delivered exactly what Peter needed. And he knew he needed to do that because he knows it's easy for us to get stuck in failure. It's, easy, it's so easy to get stuck there, especially when we feel like we've bailed on Jesus. You know, the, the guilt-shame cycle is a powerful thing, and, and I believe the enemy of our souls uses it powerfully to keep us stuck, to prevent us from moving forward through failure to freedom to follow Jesus. Right? You know, our, our little city of Grand Rapids here has a pretty strong Dutch cultural vein. Uh, this, this northern European thing, or even Scandinavian like me. Come on, Lowy Lotes. You know who you are. We've got to stick together. Um, there's, this, there's this northern European thing, right? Indirect communication. This conflict avoidant kind of thing. These are big sweeping generalizations. I get that. Forgive me. But it's a thing. And you might, you might have experienced this. I'm sure you have at some point in life. Might be a culturally related thing. Might just be a behaviorally related thing. But this conflict avoidance leads to tension in relationships, right? And the Bible warns us of a spiritual danger to this because uncommunicated frustrations lead to bitterness, which then leads to resentment, which is relationally devastating. Right? And Jesus is all about renewing relationships who invites us to confess and repent and pursue one another if we offend one another, all of that. But when we're living in this place of avoiding conflict and kind of not communicating things, what, what comes out behaviorally is this passive-aggressive bit. 
right, where we say and do things geared at not communicating uh, to another person where we're at, but geared at trying to evoke a feeling in the other person to try to make them feel bad for what they did or feel differently so they might change. Well, let me just tell you, that never works because we all have internal sensors and understand that we're being manipulated. It's, it's, it's passive. It's a passive form of, of communication. It's really not good. It creates uncertainty in relationships, right? Because you never really know where you stand because you can't trust the other person to just tell you. You're always guessing. It's almost a, a cultural liturgy for some people. Right? It's, it's the way we behave and that behavior then shapes us and our understanding of the world. It's a profound thing because it also shapes our understanding of God. You see, so often we view God as the big disapproving father in the sky. You know, act, acting in ways we've seen other people close to us act. You know, kind of displeased with us, but unwilling to say it. Hoping we'll get it, but never really being clear about what's going on. All the while kind of non-verbally communicating disappointment. And if we live with this as kind of a working model for our relationships, the times when we feel like we fail Jesus, then absolutely devastate us. Because the internal narratives going on are, yep, that, that just goes to confirm what I've always believed about God, the big disapproving father in the sky up there, you know, arms crossed, kind of a scowl. When are you really going to get this right? And while this last thing I did, well, you know, now his foot's tapping too. Right? But but what, what Jesus did for Peter proves that that is not true. It's not true. We all know those internal narratives of condemnation. One, one of the most helpful things a pastor ever said to me, one of my mentors, was Jesus speaks words of conviction to you. The enemy speaks words of condemnation to you. This is how you tell the difference. If Jesus is speaking to you about something difficult, it will go like this. Hey, that one area of your life, that, that is, that's not the path of life. That's not my best for you. That doesn't lead to this closeness of relationship with, with you. It's neither good for you nor for me or our relationship. Therefore, this needs to change. That's conviction. Condemnation around the same issue goes like this. You are such a screw-up. Seriously, again? Can you not get it right? When will you ever learn? Come on. If other people knew this about you, what would they think? Man, you are hopeless. That voice is the voice of the enemy. Do not believe it. Don't believe that. It is a lie. Jesus speaks conviction, change. The enemy speaks condemnation. See, Jesus calls us to follow him from failure to freedom. The Bible's really clear on this. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Not just in some 
ethereal kind of spiritual way, though Jesus has set us free spiritually when we trust him, I believe God wants us to experience freedom in this life now. Jesus did what he did so that we could be free right now. So here's the thing. If you're not doing anything to combat that spiritual stuckness, that voice of condemnation, that narrative that's playing in the background somewhere that says you're not good enough, you're not worthy, God doesn't really love you, then in a way you're settling for something less than Jesus wants to give. Resisting, maybe even, the gift he came to give. And and maybe it's that you don't know that there's another way. Maybe you've lived in the church your whole life and you just think that voice of condemnation is, is normal and we just have to live with it. I think we probably will combat it our whole lives, but there's something to do. And or maybe that you, you know it's wrong, you know it's a lie, but you don't know exactly what to do about it or where to begin. What do I actually do to combat that narrative, to to do something different? Jesus, some of Jesus' first and and last words to his disciples, not the very first or very last, but at the beginning and at the end, he said, follow me. He didn't say, believe in me. Though that's really important. He said, follow me which again is both invitation and a statement of belief. I believe that with my help, you can be like me. I hope you know that if you've made a decision to trust Christ and are seeking to walk with him, Jesus, the king of the universe, believes in you. Not in the sense we normally use that phrase though. He doesn't believe in you in the way that, that uh, uh, says that you know, if you work hard enough and do enough, you can fix yourself. That's, that's not the deal. What he's saying is, I believe in you in the sense that with my help, I really believe that you can be like me. And that kind of life is much greater than simply believing things of faith of God and and Bible and Jesus in your head and stumbling forward through life in some way just trying to avoid the big bad stuff. There's another kind of life available to us that's much larger than that. In the church we often get fed a diet of things we're supposed to do to join God in his mission work in the world. And these things are good and and true, right? We need to be present where we are as Christians, available to the people around us, wherever that is. But if we're stuck, if that narrative is turned up to a volume of 10 in our souls and spirits, it's, it's condemning, then all of this teaching is, I believe, sometimes simply experienced as Uh, you know, another log on the fire. One more reason for me to believe those lies of condemnation because I'm not doing those things or I'm imperfect at them. So, you know, why even try? Because, man, somebody else must be doing that because I'm certainly not, you know, doing anything there. Jesus calls us from failure to freedom to follow him. And he gave us a tool. So here, here's, here's the thing. At bare minimum, we have to believe that following Jesus involves praying. Right? 
and Jesus gave us a template for praying. Not something to simply be recited, though that's good too, but a guide to pray through our biggest categories of struggle. And starting to pray this way is how we begin to follow Jesus from failure to freedom and on to mission then. And the guide is, of course, the Lord's Prayer. And you have a little picture in your handout, a little a wheel. This is a practical tool that you can use to engage prayerfully moving from failure to freedom to following Jesus. And it goes like this. You start with the top, Father, uh, the character of God. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, goes the prayer. And there's a world loaded into this. Our Father in heaven, our Abba, intimate relationship with God has been recreated in Christ. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May you be worshipped everywhere by everyone. That's very simply put. This is about identity, who God is and who we are in Christ. And it's no mistake, I believe, that Jesus told us to start there because we so quickly forget who God is and who we are in Christ. So as, as we pray, start there. And then God's kingdom is the second part. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is remembering our purpose in Christ, working with God to advance the kingdom in the world, understanding that the world is not as it should be and that Jesus joins us or calls us to join him in his work in the world. And then we move on to provision. Give us today our daily bread. This is recognizing our posture of dependence. We, we might have a great job and think we can provide for ourselves. Come on, really? Everything we are, our ability to think and move and, and act and love and make decisions, these are all gifts. We take a posture of dependence. God's forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We, we ask for the grace of forgiveness and the grace to be able to forgive others. And very quickly on its heels is the prayer for guidance because so often the things for which we're asking forgiveness are the very things we're asking God to protect us from in the future. Lead us not into temptation. Some translations say, let us not be led into temptation. Protect us from our weak spots, our our natural inclinations apart from you, O God. And then God's deliverance, but deliver us from the evil one. And we're asking for victory over all of these things, not just getting by. But victory, understanding that there is an enemy who is against us, who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Really. We need deliverance. So at bare minimum, the first step in following Jesus is is praying. And he gave us this resource. Nobody wants to stay stuck. I don't know where you are in your inner spirit today. But I certainly know what it feels like to be stuck. Maybe you're stuck right now kind of this weekend. Maybe you feel like you've been stuck for a week or maybe a month. Or maybe you feel like you've been stuck for years and you don't know how to break out of this thing. I mean, Jesus made this pretty clear. He did what he did that we might live in freedom. So this is not another log on the pile saying that you're doing it wrong and therefore should feel bad about yourself, right? Do not hear that. It's just that Jesus came to bring freedom. Really, 
this is one tool, praying the Lord's Prayer. Another tool is to do that with a trusted friend. And, and to do this together and to begin to share spiritually in some way. Not to do it alone. Right? So you've got the little picture there. You can pray it a couple different ways if you like. There's a little Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday thing. You could pray one section of the pie per day. Or you could pray through all of those aspects of the Lord's Prayer every day and just pause on that place where the Holy Spirit kind of catches your spirit. And you know there's a thing, I need to stop there and just kind of go deeper at, at that place. See, at Peter's point of greatest failure, Jesus reinstated him. If you feel right now like a complete failure spiritually, Jesus wants to reinstate you. You don't have to stay stuck. He's given us a tool, a tool to begin with. Use it. Use it not to do it on your own, but use it to rely on Jesus. Jesus calls us from failure to freedom to follow him. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me, would you? Father, as the one who speaks uh, this morning, I'm quite mindful of my own failures and uh, my own struggle with the narrative that says, who do you think you are? Standing up there talking about Jesus and spiritual things. Look at yourself. Father, thank you for the grace that you've given us uh, to identify lies and to embrace truth. And we pray, God, that you would bring a deep healing in us, whatever our particular need happens to be, that you'd bring a deep healing in us that results in us being more and more able to trust you and believe in your love for us and to follow you into freedom. Pour out your spirit on us, Lord, and help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.